0: take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. It's delightful to be here. So I've heard that Hogan is doing a series on cause and effect or karma, and he said, please do a talk on oneness of cause and effect, and he didn't say much else besides that, so um... I'm gonna unfold this topic to the best of my my understanding. So in, in some some sense, we could say there's a conventional view of cause and effect and a, a non-dual view of cause and effect. And one way to think about the conventional view is it's a view it's the view of before and after. It's how we're experiencing life when our mind is in the mode of time. We're really relating to the um, the past and the future. And in the conventional view of cause and effect, we we do something, it's birthed into the mystery, and its outcome unfolds. And I imagine he's emphasized that your intention is a big a big factor on how that unfolds. One of the things the Buddha named as as primary to discern the quality of action is the intention it springs from. So conventional view of cause and effect, we do something and the product is evident to some, to some degree. We can observe. And based on that, we can refine our actions and make more or less skillful actions. So oneness of cause and effect is a different mode of being and seeing and understanding. And I think with a lot of Dharma terms, we hear them and we might think, oh, this is something I don't know because, huh, oneness of cause and effect or wakefulness or whatever it is, but this is all human experience. So oneness of cause and effect is something is something you know in your being. So essentially, I want to unfold something that you, you know at some level. So we're dealing with uh, causality. In Dharma teachings, we talk about body, speech, and mind as uh, modes of of causing, right? We can take actions with our body, our speech, and our mind, the mind including um, the heart. There might be a tendency to feel that only actions of body... And to some degree, speech are a causal force. One place we allow that mind is a causal force is um, with our own mental health. We allow that. Dharma practitioners, we really value that more than, more than most folks. We value the mind as uh, an originator of cause and effect in that the power of thought gives rise to things. There's a growing appreciation of the effect of mind on body, in both in medical understanding, and that's really the foundation of Japanese Buddhism. That body and mind are a continuum. You could say the body and mind cause each other's state, or perhaps they even cause each other's arising. We could think of of the mind as having a different level of causal force. And the Sufis have a term, and I may mispronounce it, and it's something like nafs or nafs. And one rough translation is thought spirits. And so in this understanding, the mind is a creative force. It's It's a matrix. It's a mother of thought entities that are emitted and live beyond our awareness of them. We can only see to some extent the causal effect of the mind. Now, you don't have to think of this with a literalistic mind, like, oh, they're saying there's little, you know, my thought of should I order a corndog is still floating around in the universe from 1984. It's not quite like that. But one of the things I think we empower ourselves with as practitioners is we no longer believe our mind is an a-causal zone. We start to be more open to the interaction of our mind and our relationships, or our mind and the world we experience. Um, synchronicities. Sometimes we get a, a taste of this. Has, has anyone ever had a really powerful synchronicity that made you go, Whoa, that was... Okay, I see some nods. So in, in synchronicity, we get a, a flirt of our mind state and matter interacting. We get a taste of um, inner cause and outer effect being synced up. So a couple um, years ago, I was dating a woman, and she decided to break up with me. And I kind of knew that before I went to visit her. And I felt that. And so I show up at her apartment, and she welcomes me. And as soon as I come in the door, she pauses her TV and on the TV, it was a Star Trek episode, but there were closed captions. And where she paused it, it said, There is no interest here. And then we proceeded to have the conversation, and that's what she told me in her own words there is no interest here. Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe there's some randomness to that event, but I'm not so sure. So. Bob, I love, I love your laughter, but could you mute yourself? I will. All right, thank you. Thank you. So some of you have probably read the Dhammapada, where um, the Buddha says that mind is the forerunner of all things. There's a lovely translation by Tanasaro Bhikkhu that says, heart is the forerunner of all things, or even the creator of all things in some in some translations. So, in Dharma, we look at how primary is mind a causal factor? How primary is mind, ours and others, a factor among the forces that converge to give rise to something in our experience? Now, we're not like, um, what was that New Age thing that was really popular where you thought thought something and it just showed up? There was this movie, the, The Message or the... It was really popular. I don't think that's uh, the, secret. the secret. Thank you very much. I don't. I don't quite think that's that's the understanding of the Buddha that you you know just think things into manifestation. It's a little bit more subtle than that. But how primary is mind a causal factor? You know, that's a, a at the core of our investigation. We talk about suffering and. How primary is our own mind in the suffering we experience, and how much is it just external circumstances uh, stressing us, impinging? So in this case, mind includes consciousness, intention, thought, feeling, state, perception, all, all of it as, as a, causal, a causal energy. So then, with oneness of cause and effect, we, we explore that. For example, um, bodhicitta. I don't know if Hogan Roshi uses this, this phrase, bodhicitta, but I think some of you are familiar. Bodhicitta is really a, an orientation or an attitude. It's what we're, we're sparking when we do the four vows, the four bodhisattva vows, it's essentially giving rise to the aspiration to be of benefit now and in the future. Okay? So we, we start to infuse this intention into our mind stream through hearing it in the, in the Dharma Center over and over, through reading it, through our own prayers. We start to seed it as, as uh, a causal force in our mind stream. And the more we do that, the more it arises, the more it's um, sparked. So, more deeply, we discover bodhicitta as a mode of being, as an orientation towards experience. So, that orientation may very well be a factor in future skillful or compassionate actions. And I think, that, I think that's really true. You know, um, I have a friend who's a Dharma teacher who one of her peripheral students got involved in a crime of passion where he walked in on his wife having sex with another man. And he proceeded to murder this man. And when she was counseling him in prison, one of the things that she found out is that he had rehearsed this in his mind over and over and over, what he was going to do if he ever caught them, because he knew there was an affair. So he had seeded it, he had seeded it and seeded it and seeded it, and then finally the sunlight, the water, and the seed came together, and there you have it. So, we have this orientation of bodhicitta towards experience, but when we think of oneness of cause and effect with bodhicitta, for example, we see that the orientation and the benefit is one. The orientation and the benefit is one. Simultaneously with that orientation to benefit beings, its effect is right there. And how is that? How do, you, how do you notice that? If you've done those kind of practices, saying the, the four vows, and you do it from a place in your heart that feels uh, genuine and not, not perfunctory, what is the effect on your being at the moment you're doing that? What's the afterglow of that? You could look at it with uh, metta practice. So if we say metta is an orientation... It's, it's a mode of being. In the moment of being in the mode of being of metta, of practicing metta, the result of metta is right there in your own body. We do the practice and the effect is, is right there. As soon as we open in that way, something has to be let go of. As soon as we give rise to that, that aspiration, something shifts in the body, however subtle. So with oneness of cause and effect, it's not like we're casting our line into a pond and then eventually something will bite. We could look at it with um, suffering. So a teacher like Hakuin Zenji would say that the cause and effect of suffering are the same thing. You know, we, we have the Four Noble Truths, and I don't know how it would be translated most excellently, Without the limitations of the human, excuse me, the English language. But essentially, it says that suffering is caused by clinging. But from this point of view, clinging isn't the cause of suffering. Clinging is suffering. It's not like you cling and then suffering happens. It's the same thing. Actually, it's the effect of suffering that we cling, and it's the cause of clinging that we suffer. So the practice of suffering, in a sense, has no gap. The same thing is with letting go. The moment of letting go and the fruit of letting go are simultaneous. This was something that was um, really important to uh, Dogen Zenji, so the the founder of our, our Soto heritage. It was actually his primary koan. In the Japanese Buddhist tradition... Uh, At his time in the 11th, 12th century, and also still today, the view of Dharma is that one is originally Buddha, that enlightenment is not produced through a causal series of efforts. It's not a linear thing. It's not do X and eventually Y will arise. It's that that is actually our real state. Now, Dogen said, well, wait a minute, why are all these people doing all these terrible things then if they're originally Buddha? That just doesn't make sense. How could it be that all beings are this awakening and yet they manifest confusion? So that was his, uh, that was his koan. And after his um, awakening, he began to teach that the practice of the Buddha way, he called it practice enlightenment. It's actually one word, practice enlightenment. So, in a sense, human beings, from this point of view, are born into an identity crisis. We're born with confusion about what we really are. You know, you might even read the the Polycanon and get the hear that because we're confused, we're born. Because we're confused, we've taken this body and its consequence of, of suffering. So anyways, human beings are born into identity crisis, and I really like that because then I, can, I, I feel that everybody is really on the spiritual path from this point of view, because we're all born into spiritual crisis. So human beings are born into identity crisis, and as an effect of that, we practice confusion. We don't know who we are. And so we, we practice the three poisons of greed, anger, and ignorance. It's just what you do when you don't know that you're Buddha. And so um, a teacher like, I believe it was Banke would say, he's a Japanese Zen teacher, 13th century, um, one moment of anger and you manifest as a hell being. One moment of craving desire and you enter the realm of the hungry ghosts. He was pointing at how our confusion manifests us in different modes all the time. So Dogen, he elaborated this a whole lot. If you're interested in finding out about this, he had a lot to say. He said, my paraphrasing, that Zazen is actualizing Buddha through practice. And a direct quote is, Zazen is becoming Buddha with intention. Again, he's not talking about intended and then later it's going to happen. That's all one for him. Becoming Buddha with intention. Intending Buddha into manifestation. Practicing awakening. So there's a saying in the Soto tradition, one inch of Zazen is one inch of Buddha. I actually had a, a Rinzai Zen teacher um, tell me this, which was very, very sweet that he brought this in. One inch of sitting, one inch Buddha. But, but what is that? What is that? The practice of awakening, what does that mean? It's less a doctrine and more an invitation to, to explore what we're up to. So to look at it from uh, another angle, um, what's the cause of the practice of awakening? okay. In other words, what brings you to doing this? Something caused you to come this this way and take on this, you know, in the context of the culture at large, this is really weird. I mean, it's Saturday night, people. You know? So, what's what's the cause of this practice that you're doing? The the traditional answer is suffering. Suffering's the cause. And that's in the conventional view of cause and effect. We've suffered you know, and we get to our teens or our 20s and we encounter a book on Buddhism and we realize, oh, I can do something about this. But what if original Buddha, you know, just to use a term, don't think there's some golden thing inside you. It's just, a, it's just pointing at something. What if original Buddha is the cause of our practice? What if Enlightenment being the fundamental truth of our nature is why we do this. So one way that Dogen would express this is um, a cat purrs and a Buddha does Zazen. We recognize what we are and we enact what we are and we enact what we are and then we recognize what we are. It It works both ways. So something um, interesting is when when you're when you're practicing meditation and attention wanders into thought. Okay, how is it you become alert to its wandering? If your attention is caught up in thought, how do you know that's happened? So another thing that. Dogen Zenji would say is that it is Buddhas who enlighten delusion. Another beautiful koan. It's Buddhas who enlighten delusion. In a sense, suffering brings forth awakening. That because of confusion, there's the practice of presence. so enlightenment caused by confusion and vice versa so in this in this way of looking at things the three poisons are actually medicine because what we primordially are what is ultimately true is always shining through and confusion gives rise to that very shining through. You could say that um, poison cures itself. I know one of the things um, Hogan Roshi, I, I've heard him say many, many, many times, and I think he says this from his um, you know, long and deep engagement and, and blood, sweat, and tears in practice, As he says, nothing is wasted. Everything you go through is grist for the mill. All of our, our struggles and when we come to practice we examine those patterns of a struggle that is exactly the composition of our awakening. It's exactly the composition of our awakening. They're not separated. So the teachings of karma from the reality of cultivation, of linear time, you could say are an invitation to a conscious co-creation of the world we live in. And to some degree, a a real investigation of of how, how deeply is mind a force in the world I experience. And to whatever degree it is possible... To consciously manifest our state of mind independent of externals, we do that. Do you know what I mean? It's that sense of going into a situation where it used to disturb you, and it used to really impact you in a negative way, and now there's a space in mind where that doesn't have to happen. There's The, the quality of mind has, has regained some independence from external forces and can rest in its own nature. So this is one way that we're working with karma. We're cultivating this ability. I'm really interested in, in how, no matter who becomes elected president, and whether we're happy about it or not, how can we not let that drain the light of our spirit? And I think, I think Dharma practice has so much to say about this. How can external events um, be what they are and touch us, but not be that which decides what our state of mind is? So there's a the vo- view of cultivation, and then karma also means the oneness of cause and effect too. We're woven in. We're woven in. What's happening in the world is happening in us. And what's happening in us happens in the world. We're happening in each other. There have been um, lots of beautiful images that have attempted to give some, some sense of, of this way of, of experiencing cause and effect. I have a crude one I want to share with you that, that works for me. Imagine the universe or reality is like a cone of sticks leaning on each other, you know. Like, have you ever set that up like if you're making a fire? I don't know what that's called, but you take the twigs and you make the cone. Now, each stick is independent, right? And yet it's not independent from the perspective of the whole. As a cone, it's a cone. As sticks, they're sticks. You can look at it both ways. Now, one stick catches fires and the others don't necessarily catch fire. But there's a good chance they will because they're next to each other. They might catch on fire, but not necessarily. But even if one stick catches on fire and the others don't, for the cone, the cone is on fire because every stick is the whole of the cone. If there's a cone, you point at the cone, and all you can point at is either all of the sticks or a stick, and both of them are the cone. So we're cone and stick. And of course, of course we're neither, because there's a lot of space within and without. So the teachings of karma are an invitation to the generosity of setting into motion beneficial ripples. I've I've heard just secondhand some uh, saying from an indigenous culture that you take actions for future generations, that you should keep in mind. I think it's seven generations, and then I think somebody marketed some toilet paper based on that. Unfortunately, but that when you make an action, you really consider the impact for seven generations. So that's one way we think of karma and and generating positive karma is this is generosity. You you are setting something in motion that a future version of yourself experiences. In the linear reality, you may never actually chosen. Roshi would sometimes say, "If it was if it was a different version of you in another life that became enlightened from your efforts, would you still do it? Would you still practice if you were to not receive the benefit of it? Of course, that's the, that's the linear view." So um, cause and effect is, is a very, very rich topic. There's a quote from um, the Buddha on cause and effect that said something like, um, if you really tried to understand cause and effect, it would just boggle your mind. It's not possible. It's so nuanced and so complex. And then in later in the Mahayana teachings, there was the image of Indra's net right the net of jewels and each jewel which is each conscious being reflecting every other jewel in the net and those reflecting every other jewel that's reflecting and it's it's endless and then that's that's an image for our life and this ordinarily magic interactive reality that we we live and practice within